Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by living time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues The No Mickey Show it's Fem Friday, Friday, December 17th. And oh my gosh, this year is almost done. Where has the time gone? I felt this way last year, but that was pandemic time. We're still in the pandemic. We're kind of like not in the pandemic. We're working. We're seeing people. We're not. But more than anything, I'm thinking to myself, where's the time gone? And how 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 did we get to this point? How many fights have we gotten in? over the last couple of years since the pandemic, and how many of those fights have been productive? That is the question I'm asking you guys today. Because while we have been in our corners, uh, chirping away on Twitter, fighting the fight, sharing the memes, spreading the message, of course, there are very productive fights like labor fights on the ground, but I'm talking about the, let's say, like the online lefty universe. How many of these fights have been productive? Just a couple of years ago, Steve Bannon was in Europe recruiting candidates. He actually had a school at a monastery in Italy, an old monastery, where he trained far-right, essentially fascists, from all different parties across Europe on how to run for office, on the type of messaging that wins, the playbook for right populism, everything from leaning into China to targeting young white men who are uh, distrustful, distrusting institutions, to really leaning in on, on basically coded language against women. So they have been up to this for a while. He even said openly in the documentary, The Brink, to a reporter from The Guardian, the left-leaning Guardian, he even said openly to The Guardian reporter, oh, we need, for the next election cycle, we need 20% of your people, meaning 20% of the left. That was his strategy. Now, of course, his his EU experiment did not work out so well, uh, but that doesn't mean that the right wing went away in the EU. The UK suffered a loss yesterday with one far-right member being lost, who was a key part of Boris Johnson's uh, coalition. They lose a little, but the ideas are spreading. So I ask you, how many of the fights that you've gotten into in the last two years have been productive fights? Maybe 70%, maybe 20%. But I think moving forward into the new year, given that this is one of our last shows before the new year, we have to be thinking about how we fight. We have 11 months, 11 months until the election in November. 11 months in which we are very likely to lose our coalition. I say that because uh, I think a lot of us wouldn't align with the establishment's choices. But the coalition of Democrats, right? The coalition of the broader left. We have 11 months until the Senate is likely lost and definitely Congress is lost to Republicans. Except now, whether or not Donald Trump runs or doesn't run in 2024, or whether or not Joe Biden wins or doesn't win, the ideas that Trump spread, that are spreading all over the globe, that are continued, they're, they're being shared, they're beyond capacity at this point. Meaning, it started. some of these ideas started in churches, 
40 years ago. Some of these ideas started uh, to spread with this new strategy with the Koch brothers funding. Some of it was Reagan. You know, all of this stuff goes back. Nixon, you can go as far back as, you know, early colonial days, Columbus, right? But in terms of this modern day strategy, it is very much based on a strategy that Bannon's been putting into practice, a strategy that he's been studying from 1938. So I ask you right now, we have 11 months, 11 months. Are we going to defeat the right? Are we going to depend solely on the Democrats or are we going to come up with a new strategy? I can tell you one thing I've learned from reading books, <laughs> watching movies, uh, and reading endless reports on Steve Bannon and even working in Europe a couple of times in the last few years to defeat the right wing. I can tell you one thing I've learned. One universal aspect of this movement, depending on which flavor of a fascist they are, which country they're from, which party they're up against, whether it's the center left or the center right or the progressives, a unifying factor is a total, total, I'm saying this very clearly because I, got, I want you to understand this. There's a targeted level of attacks against women. It is a rallying cry. I want to talk about women because it's Femme Friday. I believe that the pathway, and we can see this the way that they target the squad, the way that they target Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton, there is misogyny all over the place. But why is this extremely dangerous right now? Not just because it is something that they unify around. It's not just because, you know, they look at Jordan Peterson and say, well, he is such a brilliant man. Well, guess what? Someone who comes in through Jordan Peterson may come out like an absolute fascist. Or maybe not. It's just a coalition. They'll vote for whatever person on the right they see, and they'll be brought in whichever way. It could be Joe Rogan. It could be Jordan Peterson. It could be Tim Pool. It could be Dr. Oz. But why is this dangerous right now? Not just because they use, there's a misogyny across the board, whether it's how they talk to women, whether it's their, their stance on, on economic issues that they don't understand affects women. Sometimes they're not even conscious. Most times they're not even conscious of the fact that they're being misogynistic. And this occurs on the left too, which is why I will not back down on this issue. Because if you want to defeat these guys, we have to talk about the misogyny. We have to define the misogyny. Well, here we go. This pandemic, do you know who suffered the consequences of this pandemic economically the most? Almost 90% of women, of the women who lost jobs in 2020, almost 90% exited the labor force completely. And they're not going back. This is what the stats say. This is not just bad for the economy and bad for women's rights. This is bad across the board. This is bad for health. This is bad for childcare. Women make up uh, the most reliable, uh, aspect of the workforce, they produce more. So it's actually bad for capitalism. This is horrifying. If we want to beat the fascists, if those of you out there who believe that we are taking on capitalism, you need to understand that capitalism is, is tied into the patriarchy. 
The Proud Boys, I don't think anybody is shocked to hear that they're misogynistic. The Proud Boys are now investing in local races, in school boards. They're going to be running in city councils. I already know of one candidate who's a teacher, a woman who's running for school board, because that makes sense, right? And she's being, she's, she's, she's stressing out because she's being labeled as the CRT lady by a Proud Boy member. This is the fight. Women are on the front lines of the pandemic, and now women need to be on the front lines of fascism, taking on fascism, because there's nothing that scares that guy more than a teacher, a woman who understands education, who understands her community, who's a union member, who's organized. Maybe she did it in Arizona, and she was part of that uprising. They are scared of that. That is what they're scared of. But that is what it's going to take to win. Because if we don't do this, then what is the alternative? Are we just going to sink another, I don't know, billion dollars into the Democratic Party ad strategy? That's really been working. So we have to think strategically right now. What are they afraid of? Well, clearly they're afraid of Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and Nancy Pelosi. I mean, it doesn't matter. They don't care what kind of woman. They're just afraid of women. And they say it out loud, and they use it as a rallying cry. They even target our show so that folks who watch our show suddenly spill over into their shows. That is their strategy. That is Bannon's strategy. He says it out loud. So if we think this is some theory, you got to get out of that mindset. We have 11 months. If we lose the Senate, Congress, and the presidency... And we're already in this state, state of affairs. How bad is it going to get? We have a wonderful show today. Uh, we are going to be talking about shouting your abortion. And what does that mean right now? Everyone's talking. It's all over the news today in particular about abortion pills being the solution to all of these, well, temporary solution at least, Band-Aid, uh, to all of these restrictive abortion laws that are, you know, uh, popping up all over the country. And of course, what's happening um, in the challenge to Roe v. Wade. We're going to be talking about that at the top of the show with Amelia Bono. And then we have Alice Herman on to talk about how workers at a beverage giant defeated a notorious union buster. Ooh, what was their strategy? I can't wait to hear because that's the kind of strategy we need to look at. And then later we have Julia Doubleday on with Jamie Beck. Yes, what a show. It's been Friday. We will see you in a second. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulate and give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left his best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show. The No Miki Show. Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. Okay, so uh, Roe v. Wade, guess what? That's on the chopping block right now because we are not just in dystopian times. We are entering a hellscape. 
this is why we are in power. <laughs> Let's not forget. This is why uh, we can't just pay attention to presidential elections. This is why we have to fight in between at all times, organize locally, because because the courts, whether it's the Supreme Court to the local courts to the legislatures, uh, this is all on the chopping block. There's a reason why they're going after women, as I've laid out at the top of the show. All right. Uh, very excited because there are some alternative strategies. Amelia Bono uh, is the founding director of Shout Your Abortion. Shout Your Abortion is a movement working to normalize abortion through art, media, and community events all over the country. Really exciting stuff. Uh, in 2015, Bono's abortion disclosure inspired a viral outpouring of abortion stories on social media, receiving front page coverage from the New York Times, LA Times, New Yorker, ABC Nightline, BBC, da 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 da, -da, -da all of the places. Very exciting. Amelia, um, I thought I, wait, do I have my abortion pills here? Oh, no, I didn't stage this right. Damn it. I usually have them next to my desk because, you know, when I get fired up, I just go, abortion pills. I do too, but mine are also out of reach, unfortunately. All right. During the commercial break, I will bring them back and we'll just like put them into the... Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So Amelia, shout your abortion. Uh, let's just talk about the work that you're doing. Obviously, today is a very big day because, uh, you know, I woke up this morning. I'm like, what a day to have you on because everyone's talking about abortion pills. Um, what is the premise of shout your abortion and how did you, you, you come up with this idea? Um, so SYA started... Well, I guess backing up, I had an abortion in 2014. Um, I live in Seattle, Washington. And my experience was, um, it was great, honestly. I felt really uncomplicated about my decision. It wasn't even a decision, really. It was like, I'm pregnant. Okay, I'm having an abortion. And that's just not going to be that big of a deal. Um, I knew that I didn't face any you know, institutional, financial, logistical barriers. I was going to be able to go down the street to the Planned Parenthood I'd been going to for years. They'd take good care of me. And I knew that folks in my life were pro-choice and that I was going to be able to just like process my experience if I wanted to, and that I probably was going to want to. Um, so fast forward like a year later um, was when a bunch of domestic terrorists led by a man named David DeLayden had put together um, a, just some completely batshit propaganda, making it look like Planned Parenthood was like selling baby brains on the black market. And um, Republicans were able to leverage this total insanity to mount their first effort to defund Planned Parenthood. And Democrats, shockingly, were completely feckless in that moment. Um, they, the, the party line was sort of like, they don't do that much abortion instead of, that's nuts. That's not what abortion is. Abortion is actually a profoundly good thing and necessary thing in society. And let's talk about why that is. But there was just sort of like silence um, on the left, and that was super upsetting to me. Um, and then just one day off the cuff, I, well, I mean, I guess before the off the cuff moment happened, I had sort of been like talking to folks in my life and women in my life. I was tending bar, I was in graduate school, and I was freaking out about this political moment. And I was like kind of realizing I wasn't necessarily invoking my own experience in those conversations just because that's like, not what you do when you're making a vodka soda for a stranger or whatever. <laughs> well, not what you do, but uh... <laughs> yeah, well, not it wasn't then, but 
Um, but like, I just sort of realized that I wasn't feeling ashamed and my silence was sort of just like a form of complicity to this just big, vague abortion stigma that Republicans had created and Democrats had done nothing to, you know, address. And I realized that like my silence was just indicative of a lot on the left. So I started referencing my own abortion more readily and shocker, people all around me, people that I didn't know started being like, yeah, I had an abortion too. And then we'd be like, wow, that's wild that we've never talked about that. We've known right. each other for five years. We've been phone banking at Planned Parenthood. Like, um, And so one day, the day that the House of Representatives voted to defund Planned Parenthood for the first time, I just wrote a status update on Facebook quaintly that was like, hey, I had an abortion a year ago at Planned Parenthood and I'm not sorry, I'm not ashamed, I just, feel a profound level of gratitude for the people that took care of me that day. And I'm saying this out loud because the anti-choice movement is relying on silence from pro-choice women that have had abortions and I'm done with that. Um, and it just sort of immediately went viral, uh, largely in part to my dear friend, Lindy West, tweeting it out and adding the hashtag shout your abortion. And over the course of a couple of days, it just was all over everything and hundreds of thousands of people use this hashtag to um, share their own abortion experiences often for the first time. Um, and after that, I, I left school, I started organizing. There was just a ton of momentum, not just online, but people all over the country were like, you know, having events and making clothes and doing graffiti and lots of just like really grassroots, really like punk DIY kind of riot girl button making parties and, you know, abortion speak outs on college campuses. And, I lived off credit cards for a little while. I looked around for grant money for a few months. And um, six years later, we're in our sixth year as a nonprofit with four whole employees. And we're looking to scale up, as a matter of fact, because, wow, yeah, things aren't great. Not great. Um, it's a hell yeah. Um. So, I, you know, I start off the show tying the attack on women to the far right and and their strategy. And I, I don't know why we have to – like you're talking about how we have to explain abortion, but I'm shocked that I still have to say like it's not about the babies for them. It's not. Yeah. That's code for controlling women and not allowing them to make their own decisions. And and I want to tie this into the abortion aspect, which and if I have had an abortion too, I will say it, you know, and I understand, I personally understand why some women don't for a lot of reasons. You know, there's, there's trauma, there's lots of other stuff that happens, but the number one, and I'm so glad this is being shared online. Like the last couple of days was like a meme about this reasons why women get abortions. The majority of women get abortions because they can't afford to have the child. So you want to empower a woman and give them independence. And sometimes they're in relationships with men that, that, you know, are not. There's just lots of things. There's lots of reasons why. But keeping, it's not because they want to kill babies or put them in a baby, whatever, whatever the thing is. <laughs> and the fact that we're even going in on that path of defending, like you said, like Democrats are like, that's not true. How many times I've gone onto like a cable news show where I have to sit there and explain like, you know, Okay, Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. Uh, why am I talking about this? It doesn't matter. You want to control us and you don't want us to be economically independent because you want a free slave in your house producing babies and more people to put your stupid white supremacy continuation in the world, right? It's, 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 I mean, this is a much larger 
is that Heidi? I think I know that person <laughs> on screen really. right now. Um, it's a much larger, uh, uh, it's part of a much larger strategy, of course, to keep white men in power. And they just are, you know, checkmark, checkmark, checkmark. And the more we're fighting over things that we won 30, 40 years ago, um, the further behind we're going to be, especially after a pandemic where, you know, majority of, of, of folks that were affected were women, all of the folks that were affected by the pandemic were women. So, um, right. you know, you're you, right now with, with abortion pills, right? Tell mm -hmm. us, tell us what's, what the strategy is and what's happening with abortion pills. Yeah. So, um, abortion pills have been on the market in the States since 2000. Um, they were developed, uh, I believe in France and they were, um, discovered to be an abortifacient in South America, primarily in Brazil, where abortion was illegal or very heavily regulated. And women like realized that, oh, this ulcer medication is causing me to miscarry. So they started like hoarding it and keeping it and, you know, passing it amongst people who needed it and creating quiet networks to help people have abortions. And I think that that's really interesting because, you know, like, medicine and, you know, pharma did not like invent abortion pills for us because they want us to have them. Like women figured this out and then like the need was there and they decided to make money, thankfully. Um, but so the drugs have been on the market in the States since 2000. There have always been really, really stringent um, regulations on especially the first of the two drugs, which is mifepristone. Um, having an abortion with medication is a process where you first take the first drug, mifepristone, and then 24 to 48 hours, you take four of the second drug, which is misoprostol. Um, you can have an abortion with only the misoprostol, which is like done widely all over the world. And it's actually equally safe and effective, but it takes a little more time and a little bit more medication and a little bit more sort of like judgment calls from the person about how, about dosing and stuff. So the mifepristone makes it significantly easier. Um, and so this cocktail, also known as RU-46, came on the market in 2000, but it was regulated so, it was regulated like in a category, you know, much more aggressively than like really hardcore opiates or other meds that- Shocker, I right. <laughs> can't wait for that movie to come out. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, it was regulated like, they're, so they're super safe drugs. It's like very, very, very rare to have any medical counterindication. Um, and the regulations, like as we know, are entirely cultural. They're just about making it more difficult for people to access. Um, and the biggest one is that a person would have to go to a doctor who is licensed to perform abortion in order to pick up this prescription. Um, even though you would just take the one mifepristone at the clinic and then you would go home and the second pill, which is the one that actually causes you to cramp out whatever is in your uterus, um, is the one that you would take at home. And so like the abortion takes place at home. So it's just not, it's like an entirely cultural regulation. There's no medical reason for it. And this came to a head a couple of years ago, um, or in the very beginning of the pandemic, the FDA was like, okay, we can't actually ask people to travel in the midst of a pandemic just to pick up this drug when there's no medical reason to justify mm. that risk. So they started to consider um, 
reevaluating the REMS, which is the Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy. It's this mm -hmm. program that this drug is under that very, very few drugs are under. Um, and yesterday, the FDA announced that they were actually going to roll back a number of the REMS, um, primarily the most important being this in-person dispensing requirement. So what this means is that in blue states, people will now be able to get abortion pills by mail. Um, and also, people will be able to get abortion by mail, abortion pills by mail, no matter what these courts decide. Because the other thing that happened during the pandemic was that um, a number, like a, just groups sprung up and got their service provision dialed in and activist groups and like medical organizations dialed in their service delivery so that um, people just started doing telemedicine before it was technically allowed. Right. Um, because it was kind of like a look the other way thing until the FDA announced this decision yesterday. So now like these systems are there um, and primarily in terms of like what what to do in red states, um, there's a, an incredible woman named Rebecca Gompertz who is a Dutch doctor out of um, Amsterdam and she runs an organization called Aid Access that has been prescribing in the states since 2018. And she has made it very clear that she will never, ever stop sending drugs into red states, no matter what the court decides. The FDA tried to get her to stop doing so, and she actually sued the FDA and won. She, like, does not care. And awesome. so if you order pills in a red state through aid access, it will take a couple of weeks, but it will be shipped from India and... There's your abortion right there in the mailbox. So, so I have a question for you. Um, is there, I imagine, you know, there's there's like limitations to this pill. Like how how far how far along yeah. can you be up up until you know what is right? The, so so in the U.S. it's prescribed up until ten or in so, like sometimes eleven weeks. Um, the WHO guidelines go up to twelve weeks. The drugs work into the second trimester. It's mm -hmm. it becomes gnarly, but it's a thing that is still safe. Yeah. Um, it's still effective, and it's widely done all over the world in desperate situations. Right. And and ultimately, like that will be a thing that happens in the states now because this there's there's no doubt that this court is going to torture versus Wade, and mm -hmm. that six months from now, we're going to hear a decision that results in abortion being banned or regulated out of existence immediately in 11 states with 14 other states to follow it within the next six months. Or, you know, if it's just that they dismantle Roe without straight up overturning it, it will take a little bit longer, but it's the same result. Abortion is going to be banned in half the states in the next couple of years. And it's time to switch gears. And yeah. pills are the way that we do that. Um, you know, it's and, like, and the majority of abortions, I mean, let's let's just talk a little bit about this too, yeah. because you know, I think it's important for folks to know, especially if 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 you've never had an abortion or are unfamiliar. And a lot of guys watch political YouTube, so it'd be great to give them right. the uh, ammunition to to fight back. Mm -hmm. Um obviously if you're having an abortion, late-term abortion, you know, it's it's very rare. Oftentimes it's medical it's because of medical situations. Um but but Am I right in saying that the majority of people who have abortions, they have it early? Yeah, absolutely. So one one 
thing is that the movement has like pushed away from saying late term because that is it comes from a medical term mm -hmm. and the intent is it's like an anti um propaganda term that essentially is meant to evoke like a full term of pregnancy right so what we say is abortion later in pregnancy which generally refers to second and third try okay. um third trimester abortion in the united states is is negligible and the circumstances are like so extreme and so heartbreaking on so many levels that it's just um you know it's it's unfathomably inhumane i mean forcing anyone to continue any pregnancy is unfathomably right. humane but like third trimester cases are really beyond comprehension um second trimester cases one thing that like i think the left has not done a good job of owning is that second trimester cases actually are like not primarily medically necessary. They're primarily necessary because people have been pushed out of being able to access abortion earlier than that by, you know, trap laws that have closed clinics all over this country. I mean, we currently live in a country where there are six or seven states with only one clinic, 90% of counties with none. Um, and, you know, the Hyde Amendment passed in 1976, a few years after Roe, making it so that People can't use Medicaid to pay for abortion. So like this right has never been a right. It's been a, a commodity. It's been a, right. a pay to play. Yes, you can have your freedom if you can buy it. Um, and plenty of folks can't. Like abortion has been out of reach for poor and working class people, primarily people of color, all along. Like Roe has never, ever ensured access in this country. And like that's another incredible thing about the pills. Like, even if we were not going to experience some of the most catastrophic, like, regression that this country has ever seen and repeal this 50-year-old constitutional right, and in spite of 77% of Americans supporting Roe versus Wade in this insane example of minority rule, um, even if that wasn't happening, we need abortion pills in order to level the playing field in terms of access. Mm -hmm. um, like it and and another thing that makes me really excited about pills in this moment is that like when you think about what it was like to have your abortion or when people think about this most people are like yeah you know it wasn't a great situation i wasn't i was not excited about having an unwanted pregnancy i had to figure out how to deal with that i had to find some money i had to take some time off work i had to maybe walk through a throng of screaming protesters. And I had to probably sit with the feeling that like this wasn't something I was supposed to talk about and knowing that I would be stigmatized if I did or judged even by people on your own side or people who say that they're pro-choice, you know, justifying your decision. Were you on birth control? Could you have gone through with the pregnancy? Any of that bullshit. And like ultimately all of that is a byproduct of this cultural noise. And so much, right. I'm really curious to see what happens when people can just get something in the mail and privately end a pregnancy that they don't want to continue. And now Aid Access is even doing advanced provision, which means they'll prescribe you abortion pills even if you're not pregnant. You can just right. go request pills to have around the house. And that is going to just like completely resituate abortion in society. And all of this is, is, is a change 
that the right cannot reverse. Like they can't put this back in the bag. It doesn't matter what any court or the FDA ever decides. We're having abortions. We're using pills. We're never going to stop. We're going to dial in systems of getting people the care that they need. Um, and I think also that talking about things in that way, as opposed to we're going to fight for our rights, is is the new front of activism in this country, of, of abortion activism. Um, you know, I reject yeah. the idea that any court could have ever told me not to end my pregnancy. 100%. And it's, it's and you know, goes without saying, but we have to say it, 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 this is only going to make, having the pills is, is, a, is a way of providing safer abortions so that more women are not at risk, um, whether, no matter what happens with Roe v. Wade, because there are so many states that have, have uh, such limitations on, on um, any reproductive health, <laughs> not just abortion, but right. any reproductive health. Right. Uh, it's, it's very, very, it's a good solution. Um, so that we're not in a situation where people are dying on the way driving to another state because they have an yes. ectopic pregnancy or, yes. you know, I mean, this is the whole range from from being underage and not mm-hmm. wanting to have a child to ectopic pregnancy to uh, having four kids and not wanting to have another and not, you know, whatever. It yeah. doesn't matter. It is up to the woman to decide because she has a right not just to decide what she does with her body. That is a very independent kind of like libertarian-esque way of thinking of things. She has a mm-hmm. right to know what she wants to do with her life. If you think right. ki- having kids is not impacting every single aspect of somebody's life, right. that is what this is about from the conservative mindset. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, and going back to something you said earlier, like if it was, there is no meaningful uh project to end abortion in this country, there is simply an effort to decide who gets to have them. Because these lawmakers know that their wives and mistresses and teen daughters will always have access to safe abortion and that they, and that they will like every clinic. If you talk to anyone who works in an abortion clinic, they'll tell you that they give abortions to people who identify as pro-life who've been protesting their clinics like all day. This is a thing like the anti-choice movement is built on this insane lie that like this country doesn't run on abortion this whole country across class demographic faith background urban rural everybody's having abortions it's just like we can't we can't build functional societies without controlling our reproduction and um you know the right has realized that 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 like them being able to decide who does is a, a crucial front in in class and racial warfare. And meanwhile, the left has been like, this seems complicated to address. And they've just kicked that can down the road for so long that now like we are descending into the seventh circle of hell. Yeah. And honestly, I'm more angry at um, the Democrats half the time than I am Republicans. This morning, as a matter of fact, I woke up to a New York Times story that the Republicans are about to take back the Virginia House a month mm-hmm. from now. And Virginia Democrats were working on an effort to like enshrine abortion protections into their state constitution. But then they were like, it's Christmas time and the majority leader is in Hawaii. So we're gonna have to pass. Um, and so I just wanna say that like Democrats failure to mount any formidable resistance to this like slow slide by the Republicans to erase, you know, women's and people's right to bodily autonomy has been completely enabled by Democrats that like have like, this is a like canonical history books level failure on their part. 
Um, well, and- I mean, it, it, going back to the point of who's going to defeat these right wing people, it's not going to be people who are going and taking vacations to Hawaii, who, again, if they are personally affected, they're going to be able to afford an abortion. But if right. you're sitting there Absolutely. saying to yourself, I'm a working person who was elected to this late, and I'm the speaker you know, of the House, who's not going on a vacation to Hawaii on whatever they're making a year. Um, yeah. This is why it's 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 Democrats have to stop supporting people who who respond to pollsters and their their solution. Yeah. Like, I mean, the Hyde Amendment is a perfect example in Virginia. Tim yeah. Kaine was 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 notorious for this when 77 percent of Americans of Americans, totally Americans mm-hmm. support Roe v. Wade. This is not a wedge issue. This is not oh. something you say, well, no. I have to win in my conservative district. You no. don't, actually. The fact that the Pope can come out and say, well, actually, you know, remember what yeah. we talked about abortions? It turns out like we're right. kind of bullshit. The Pope and, is saying that. <laughs> yes. And and Democrats don't feel the political pressure adequately because of people's silence on the issue. And, you know, this is not a women's issue. I think this issue being siloed into this little realm of identity is in part what's helped us lose. We need every single person who cares about economic justice, racial justice, yes, gender parity, you know, people having equal access to freedom and their own right to life. Like if I am forced to continue a pregnancy, I have lost my right to life. One million percent. And and if if we don't hear people mounting, you know, a real like just learning to talk about why they refuse to live in a country without abortion access and people who are not just women. I mean, you know, better than anyone being surrounded by like male commentators, like how often do you hear dudes on the left just talking about, Hey guys, this abortion thing's looking really bad. I saw a lot of people online on, on Twitter, you know, sort of finally diving into that the day after opening arguments in Dobbs, where a bunch of like dude pundits were like dropping into the chat and being like, guys, this is bad. <laughs> and like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Now that you have something to opine about. But um, yeah, we need everybody to talk about it. It doesn't have to be personal or scary. It's just, it's a human rights issue. It's a class issue. It's like there are so many ways into it that aren't like about sex and women's decisions. Like you don't have to talk about any of that shit. Just talk about how the world is unlivable without abortion and you refuse to tolerate that. And it is, it is a human rights, human rights, human rights issue. I can't say that. Um, And we should be thinking about that, that we can't, it's, it's not an electoral issue. It is, this is something that we have manufactured in our country. Absolutely. Completely manufactured. It's not, yes, yes. And that's another, that's, that's the thing about the pills. Like pills are going to, take this out of this manufactured political context to some degree and also like allow women to just begin sort of defining their own experiences around this for the first time. Right. Um, and I do think that it's it's part of this broad culture change on this issue that is impossible to reverse and is really, really hopeful to me. Like we are going to win long game because yep. everybody everybody's having abortions and people actually aren't that a- against it, you know? I also like, think, <laughs> if I can just throw this out there while we're talking about pills, um, I'm on a crusade for for a lot of reasons to impose the same types of restrictions, but different actually, because it's not that bad on men. 
uh, Viagra. We should end Viagra because you're not going to have an effing Jeffrey Epstein or Harvey Weinstein running around because- Oh my God. Spoiler alert. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to actually physically be able to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, Viagra is actually significantly more dangerous than abortion pills. Oh, it is, isn't it? Right? Yeah. Uh -huh. Lots of heart attacks. Abortion pills, real safe. Yep. It's also dangerous for women. Let's yeah. also- I agree. <laughs> Amelia, thank you for your work. Uh, go check out. We have all your, your, your website up there. Support Shot Your Abortion. Um, you can support in so many different ways. And uh, this has been extremely informative. And if you're if you're a bruh watching this, share <laughs> this with the other bras. We need you. <laughs> Thanks, bras. Thanks, Nomiki. Thanks, have Amelia. A take care. You too. Bye. All right, guys. We will be right back. We have a packed show today. It's from Friday. We'll be back with Alice Herman. The Nomiki Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show. The No Miki Show. Oh boy, I, right before the show, I told David that I was uh, starting to get a migraine. And you all know, because you watch my show and you hear me complain about them all the time, I get migraines a lot. And uh, definitely due to probably, probably definitely due to the weather patterns, um, the vacillating 20 degree temperature to 60 degree temperature today, it's 60. Uh, so started to have a pressure headache, which is evolving into a little bit of a migraine. But you know what I do now? This is my secret trick. Uh, I use Sunset Lake CBD. They are a company, of course. They have very high-end CBD products. I didn't believe in CBD uh, at one point because I got some from a bodega and I spent $100 on it. And I was like, this is not, the th it tastes like crap and it didn't work. But then Sam Cedar, uh, he was like, right, again, he was like, no, 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 I use CBD for everything, for sleep, for my aches and pains. And I tried it and it worked. And then Sunset Lake CBD reached out to us uh, and sent me a bunch of stuff to try. Uh, Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products from their farm in Vermont to your door. They offer all sorts of stuff. Gummies, which are delicious, and I eat way too many at once. Don't do that. Um, tinctures, salves, and coffee, all designed to help with your stress, your aches, and your pain. And they not only are a, an amazing uh, company that supports shows like ours and the Majority Report and the David Pakman Show, but uh, they took a Ben and Jerry farm, that farm in Vermont, and they diversified it to grow premium hemp. And while they're doing that, they're enhancing a rural economy and creating meaningful employment in the community. Their minimum wage is $15 an hour. Their employees own the majority of their company. And when you support them, you're supporting a, a very strong, progressive company. Um, I love the tincture for when I have a migraine. I also, they have these like little pre-rolled joints, which are great um, because I can still work through the day, but it helps loosen me up 
which is you wouldn't be able to tell because I'm always amped up on coffee. Uh, but there's also a coffee that gives you that little coffee buzz but chills you out. But for me, I, I took a little bit of that pre-roll and um, it's helping me with my migraine. I'm also drinking a million different concoctions here, kombucha and coconut water and coffee, everything, you know, all to make sure I get through the show. You can get 20% off of your order right now if you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and you type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, go to sunsetlakecbd.com, type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, and you will get 20% off of your entire order. They have lots of new products too. They've got dog biscuits, which is really good for Bijou, our dog, who uh, gets a lot of anxiety when we're not around. They have chocolate fudge and of course the gummies. They have this new uh, massaging lotion that's incredible because if you get aches and pains, it really does help and it smells delicious. Um, go check it out, sunsetlakecbd.com. Type in Nomi, 20% off. Tell them I sent you. Uh, and that includes to my family because I turned. I just learned that they haven't been putting in the promo code. So if you're watching family, make sure to put in the promo code. All right. We will be right back in literally two seconds, two seconds with an amazing conversation about how to fight the union busters. All right, welcome back. Alice Herman is an investigative reporting fellow within these times. Great publication. Has an article out uh, titled, How Workers at Beverage Giant Refresco Defeated a Notorious Union Buster. This is the kind of article we all should be reading right now. Uh, if you're thinking about organizing a union, if you're thinking about doing a strike, if you're just, you want to share the info with other people, this is what we should be reading. Hi, Alice. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Nomiki. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on your show. So, you, um, how did you find out about this? I, I love reporters that are covering labor right now because it's almost like like covering sides of a war. Like no one's saying you know the trade secrets out loud. There are all these like private chat groups, and to hear how reporters are are learning about these actions is it's, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, so this one, um, I had been in contact with one of the organizers from UE for a while because I covered um, a, a union campaign in Madison, which is Madison, Wisconsin, which is where I'm living. Uh, oh. That yeah, that UE had organized. Um, so UE, UE is what just for folks. U, UE um, is the the full name of the union is the United. Uh, electrical and machine workers of America, but they represent um, workers in all different sectors. Uh, and um, they're a union that is known for, you know, kind of emphasizing internal democracy within the union. And they're a, a pretty progressive left organization also. Um, so the organizer who was working on the Refresco campaign reached out to me and just like sent me the contacts for a bunch of the workers who were there. Um, and, and then, and then the reporting was mostly just through those interviews. Interesting. So, so what was happening? Um, you know, what were they doing? What were they organizing on? Yeah. So, um, Refresco, I feel like I, I need to give a little bit of context here. Refresco is, um, a multinational bottling company. Um, and so, 
and they're based in the Netherlands. Um, they're a multi-billion dollar company. They, uh, they bottle like all different kinds of brand name drinks that, you know, you've probably had, like they, they bottle Arizona, they bottle Gatorade, they do Coca-Cola. They have, you know, they have lots and lots of different, uh, brands that they work with, um, Mm -hmm. that they contract with. And, um, and uh, the the plant in New Jersey that that unionized recently had been owned by a different company, a smaller company, um, which had been bought out by Refresco in the last like five or ten years. Um, and after the after the sale of the company, workers started noticing that like. Uh, I guess pe- people had kind of expected that because this was like an enormous corporation with a lot of money that maybe things like healthcare would improve um, and wages and everything, according to the workers that I spoke with, everything got worse. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and which now they attribute to the, the, the sale of the company and kind of the corporatization of the mm-hmm. firm. But, um, but in it, so, so there were, you know, there were, I, my understanding is that there were core, of workers who were interested in organizing and who had tried to organize maybe like three or four years ago around some of these issues, but it wasn't until um, the pandemic started. And I think this was true in a lot of workplaces um, that their organizing drive was really like spurred on and that, uh, yeah. And that a lot of people joined in just seeing how they weren't, you know, they're, they, 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 they alleged that there wasn't any contact tracing, that people were getting sick and that basically COVID and the, the, what they had described was that COVID was just like racing through this plant where there wasn't room to even socially distance. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that felt like evidence for a lot of people of what some of the, the pro-union, their pro-union coworkers had been saying for a long time. So on that note, um, they ended up bringing in union busters. At what phase does that happen usually, or, or in this situation, I guess? So in this situation, and I'm not sure why this, why it happened this way, oftentimes I think employers will, uh, will contact a union consulting firm, or sorry, union <laughs> avoidance consulting firm. For, for the um, audio, that was in quotations, like a that union was, avoidance. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Heavy quotes there. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah you, usually an employer will hire a union buster as soon as they think that the the possibility of, of unionization is real or once they feel threatened, essentially. Um, and, you know, for either because the, the campaign had you know, been happening in relative secret, which is a tactic, a union tactic, um, or because there had been this failed campaign before, um, the employer didn't uh, didn't hire the union buster, the union busting consultants until kind of the last hour. So it was like they had a couple of months um, or maybe it was like six, about six weeks, I think, before the election was scheduled to... Um, to try to persuade workers not to organize. And the way they were doing that was just um, holding uh, captive audience meetings, which means mandatory meetings where, um, you know, workers are in a room with 
a union buster leading the meeting and just required to be there because they're on on the clock um and you know essentially sitting them down for hours and telling them why they shouldn't unionize um and using all of these different tactics that we can probably get into in a minute um to try to convince them yeah so so let's talk about those tactics i mean this is we've seen some of the stuff that's happened uh, with Amazon, like everything from, I mean, Amazon in particular is extremely powerful, but, you know, getting the, 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 the lights to like, you know, the red lights to go longer so they can delay folks from entering the plan and, 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 uh, you know, receiving their propaganda or like illegally, by the way, um, hiding, you know, the ballot boxes and just, just like a really horrible, you know, very over the top, uh, busting tactics. But, you know, bringing in other unions. This is happening in Puerto Rico right now, where uh, the the workers at the power authority that was public and went to private. Um, the private firm brought in a bunch of union members from Florida who spoke Spanish from a different union uh, to bust. I mean, it's like all these strategies are so complicated. What kind of uh, tactics did they use? Because clearly, they didn't work. So let's just be on the lookout. Yeah, um, yeah. You'll see, like a a range of tactics, but I think that there are a handful, there are a handful of, of things that I think come up that are, that come up in common and across union campaigns. Um, in this case, uh, a majority, UE estimates about 85% of the workforce are Latin American immigrants. Um, and the, the union busters that they had, um, you know, that they contracted with, uh, spoke Spanish and really, and, uh, you know, like at least this guy Lupe Cruz um, is Latino and talked a lot about, um, you know, try this, this kind of pandering quality where, and we have like eight hours of recorded interviews. So, you know, this is part of the union busting group. He, yeah. So he, um, he's been, an anti-union consultant for like 20 years or more. Um, and he was, a yeah, he was actually a union organizer um, before he was a union buster, which is, I don't know how common it is, but I know that it, I know that that is like a, a career trajectory, unfortunately, for some Make people. Make you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah. 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 Um, Right. It's a more lucrative career than being a union organizer, for sure. Um, but uh, so he like like he would open these meetings by having people like being like really friendly and like, so what's your name and where are you from? And like, oh, yeah, I have a buddy from there. Or like, oh, oh, you know, that's that's great. That's cool. We have people from like all across Latin America. That's great. You know, having this kind of like trying to establish rapport and then essentially launching into um a lecture where he's talking about US labor law as though it's something that's incredibly complicated that you wouldn't understand if you're from a different part of the world or if you're not if you're not like deeply familiar if you're not a legal expert then like it's going to be incredibly wow. challenging yeah it's going to be challenging to navigate this and like the union can easily take advantage of you and so this is this is kind of, I think, sowing doubt in like the the intentions of the union, and then also casting the union as a a third party. That's what people, the right. union organizers describe. Yeah, union organizers describe it as like third partying the union. So um, we don't want to have this 
other organization come in and mess things up, we can address your problems ourselves. Um, so it's those were vast union conspiracy to protect their membership. <laughs> right. right. Like, what do they think? They're, like, I don't understand when I hear these tactics. I'm like, you know, your goal is to profit and we are the union. <laughs> like, Right. And so, right. And they're, that's exactly what they're trying to undermine is the sense that the, the bargaining unit or the workers within that shop who are represented by the union are the union. They, they don't want people to feel like they're representing themselves, but rather that they're, um, you know, seeking to contract somebody else to represent them. So establish this as like a business relationship. And this was something that came up a lot. Yeah. This is something that came up a lot with, with the Refresco campaign where the, the union busters were using a lot of language around, is this a good investment for you? (laughs) And like, is this, yeah, like, like, Right. As though your dues are going to be so expensive that you don't know if you're going to see a return on them. Um, but of course, <laughs> like looking at data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, we know that um, a majority that, that, that generally speaking, union workers make more and have better benefits than their non-union counterparts. So but yeah. So anyway, it's it's a, a lot of what they do is sort of without explicitly. um saying the union isn't going to give you these things they will say like do you know if the union's going to give this to you and like maybe you should look into it so they have plausible deniability when it comes to like whether or not they're making threats or something but it didn't work it didn't work no it did not um it was actually a pretty close vote um i think i'm trying to remember the the margin it was like 114 to I think the margin was the margin was like about ten votes. It's in it's in the article, um, yeah. but it was a very it was a very close vote, and um, and the workers did win their union. The work and so now what happens with the union? Like, is is this? Do they have other operations across the country? Is this like sort of the Starbucks effect where uh, they're going to move to a different facility now? I'm not sure. I think, um, so I know that, I don't know about like the UE strategy on this. I know that Refresco is a largely non-union company. So, mm-hmm. um, so this, this would, I think, represent like a, a good example for other workers of how a union campaign will work and what kinds of tactics the employer will use in responding to it. Um, in terms of next steps within like at refresco for those workers um something i wanted to mention is that after after they won their election and this is again this is a really common tactic for employers to use um the employer who had also retained the services of uh like an anti-union law firm um yeah challenge the results of the which which law firm let's put them on blast say yeah say firth shaw S-E-Y-F-A-R-T-H Shaw. Um, and they're they're a huge company and a, a lot of yeah, a lot of employers, especially larger ones, will will use them uh, in union elections. Um so right, so they had hired Saferth Shaw to and, and Saferth Shaw, and this is, you know, we we can't we we can only speculate about like the intentions of these different groups but like 
at this point, the union has voted to has 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 you know decide that the workers have decided that they want a union, mm-hmm. and they voted in in favor of unionizing. And Saferth Shah advises the employer in response, presumably advises them to challenge the results because right. you know, and 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 I think the the um their justification for that was that they said that one of the polling places had opened like three minutes late, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't seem likely to be like that. Didn't seem like a, to me. It didn't sound like a winning argument in front of the mm-hmm. NLRB. Um, but National, what it, the Labor Relations Board? Yes, yeah, the National Labor Relations Board, which oversees these elections. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but what it does is it demoralizes workers who have like already fought this campaign. They thought they won, mm-hmm. and now it's just getting dragged out and dragged out. Um, and it also and and it drain in the kind of a, the the longer, the broader in the broader view, like it drains unions of resources who are That's having right. to. Yeah, who are having to provide their own, you know, legal counsel to these NLRB hearings um, and to keep, you know, keep organizing within the workforce. And it also, you know, it's also just a boon to the to to companies like Safe Earth Shaw, which are also making money off of the company by dragging out the their contract. Right. There's there's a whole industry, a cottage industry out of this. Alice, this is like super, super interesting. Uh, folks can check out Alice's article in these times right now, uh, explaining sort of the methodology and how they did it and how they defeated them and what's next. Uh, I have no no doubt that there's going to be a lot more conversations like this in the near future and you'll be po- possibly covering it. So we hope to see you again soon, Alice. Thank you so much. We will be right back with our incredible panel. <laughs> that women have faced the serious consequences of the economy failing um, during the pandemic. 90% of women that have uh, left the workforce will stay out of the workforce. That is a jarring number. And that's just the workforce, but see how that has a domino effect on society. Not to mention how that affects healthcare, uh, childcare, cost of living. Uh, does that necessarily stimulate the economy? We keep saying the economy is back. Well, I'm sorry, when half of the workforce uh, that that lost their job during the pandemic is not coming back, I'm going to guess it's not really great for the economy. So uh, what are we going to do about it? This is all happening simultaneously as the right wing is has been organizing for decades, but is really 
really speeding up, putting their foot on the accelerator when it comes to winning elections, not these centrist right wing. This is the far right. This is the proud boys. These are the fascists. These are the people our grandparents warned us about. So what are we going to do about it? Matriarch is running a training program on January 29th. Matriarch is an organization that supports working class women running for office. And in 2022, Matriarch is supporting federal races all the way down to those local races where those proud boys are running. And who is going to be the best candidate against those proud boys who clearly hate women and everybody else that's working, any person of color, uh, working class unions, they hate them all. They hate them all. Who's going to run against them? Best folks are those women, the women who've been on the front lines, working women, women who have organizing backgrounds, who have union backgrounds, teachers, nurses, home care workers, Amazon workers, Starbucks workers, factory workers. This is how we're going to defeat these fascists. If they want to take it to the electoral side, if they want to start expanding, then we have to do something. And the Democrats are not doing it, as we know. They are not funding these local elections. They are not funding local parties. They do not have a pipeline. So we are putting it, you know, we're going to make it happen. We don't need billions of dollars. We just need to make sure that as many women who are thinking about running or are running have the support and have the guidance. And so we are doing a training on January 29th. We're hoping to train well over 100 women, make sure that the training is free, but it's only going to be free if we can raise the money by the end of the month. The training is going to cost $30,000 to make sure everybody has access to the training. We have great, brilliant people uh, explaining the methodology of running a progressive working class campaign, how to become viable earlier, how to uh, run for office, whether it's Congress or school board, uh, while you have a job, when you don't have a job, how do you deal with health care? How do you deal with ch child care? Um, are you going to be able to afford uh, your, your normal lifestyle while running for office? How is it going to change your life? What kind of attacks are going to come at you? How is, is the establishment going to react? These are the things that we are going to go through in this training. It's going to be a transformative training. Uh, we have a lot of great names. We have people who've run before who are in office. We, of course, have some of the most brilliant minds when it comes to messaging, organizing, field, uh, fundraising, of course, because we got to figure that out. They've got the money. So if you are able to today uh, to chip in to help fund this training, it goes to the training itself. Go to bit.ly slash train women, all lowercase. We've got the link up on screen. If you're watching on YouTube, we have it in the info section and all of our different platforms. Uh, tra the training is bit.ly slash train women. We're trying to raise $30,000 by the end of the year. Please help us do it and please share with as many people as possible if you know a candidate as well. All right, we will be right back with our incredible panel. <music> Welcome back. Oh, I've got my glasses on. Maybe I'll keep them on. There's a little glary glare, but I can see better. Hmm. Let's play with this a little bit. Then I'm going to turn it to some makeup tutorial. Um, all right. So uh, we are very excited to have back in the States, Julia Doubleday. She has been on a whirlwind tour of this global South. Julia, uh, welcome back. Oh, I'm sorry. Your background is not exciting enough after looking at your Instagram for the last few months. Well, you can't believe everything you see on Instagram, but it was very fun. 
I mean, I can believe everything I see on Instagram when you're in like Mexico City, <laughs> then Chile, then Argentina, and then Brazil. Like what? Yeah, you got them. Those were the big ones. That yeah. actually happened. What was your favorite um, observation from uh, studying the rise of the, the the fascist right in many of these countries and maybe some like some people palling around with them because they like, you know, they need them? Um, so I spent the most time in Chile and we're really going to see, you know, what happens with the runoff in the next few days. So today is the 17th. The runoff is the 19th. It's Sunday. What, um, what do you mean by that? Explain for folks who are not as. Involved. Yeah. Um, so there was the first round of the presidential election, as well as a lot of other elections while I was in Chile last month. I think it was November 21st or something like that. It was a Sunday. I mean, they were actually really surprised when I told them we always vote on Tuesdays. Um, they thought that was weird. Yeah, like, why would you vote on weekdays? And then I told them we also don't get off work, and they were very confused by that as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> they, so, they hear about our healthcare system. <laughs> yeah, they've heard about student it. Student loans? Do you know about that one? I love when I talk to foreigners about student loans. They're like, "What?" Yeah, I did. I talked about that as well, um, and I was explaining like the, how I know people who have like interest-only payments that are like a thousand dollars a month, and they were just totally confused. Um, but anyway, yeah. So um, in the first round of that presidential election, there were about six or seven candidates. Um, the two top candidates went to a runoff because if nobody gets a, a majority over 50% of the vote, um, then they automatically go to a runoff. So Jose Antonio Cast, who is um, this right very, very far right winger, um, proto-fascist, Trump supporter, um, who wants to sort of build this access of, uh, say access of evil, access of right wing power with Bolsonaro and Trump, who I think, um, you know, it hasn't been as discussed, I don't think, in this country, but I think a lot of people around the world wouldn't be too surprised to see Trump back in office in the next couple of years. Um, he is in a runoff with Gabriel uh, Boric, who is the left wing, um, sort of Bernie Sanders-esque democratic socialist. Actually, one of the critiques I heard of him while I was there was actually from the left, like people on the left uh, don't think he's far enough left. So um, sort of that classic dynamic that happens on the left. Um, it, one of the things that was really shocking in the first round of the elections was that um, Jose Antonio Cast came in first place. Mostly people were expecting Gorge to come in first in the first round and to go to the runoff. Um, I did speak with people who weren't even expecting Cast to go to the runoff. I think that was sort of a minority opinion, but there were sort of more centrist right-wing figures who had had an initial lead who ended up sort of dropping behind um, cast. So cast won. He, he got the most votes in the first round and everybody is very anxious to see what happens in round two. I think the one thing that could bode well for the left is that people were really freaked out by him getting first place. So there may be some mm -hmm. leftists who were more on the fence about coming out and, you know, now we'll maybe vote to prevent, you know, the same way that we, you know, a lot of leftists came out and voted for Biden, we voted to get rid of Trump. Like, hopefully that can motivate some on the left. But I don't think overall it looks great. I mean, the polling has closed a lot in the last, like, two to three weeks. Um, I think that uh, it's, it's too close to call. Okay, so Julia, um, the... 
There's a different type of fear, though. I understand on the left in places like Chile and Argentina, where they have had such horrific, uh, you know, history, recent histories, um, you know, including children being rounded up uh, and and stolen um, and while their parents were murdered because they like either were actual leftists or just like worked at a place that had a union uh, at it. Um, it's it's horrifying. And so there's the disappearing children. Um, there's just, of course, the right wing dictators. And, you know, there isn't a lot of in between. Uh, what gave rise to a lot of these right wing dictators were those who, you know, maybe initially were on the center left or the fact that the CIA installed certain folks uh, that appeared to be, you know, center left. So I understand the frustration here from a lot of folks. Is is that where you feel like this is coming from? It's, is, is it a different type of like, we don't trust him than like, you know, whatever that is in, in the U.S.? Um, I think that the left is always fractured wherever you go. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it's always painted as this like circular fire squad and there's infighting. And I think that that's true to a degree. Um, but I also think it's just what you happen, what you have, what happens when you have a free exchange of ideas. I mean, um, it's true that there's this sort of um, really solid block of opinion when it comes to authoritarian capitalists. But like the reason for that is because they're authoritarians. I mean, like you're not going to have the same kind of um, just like like uh strength of just total commitment to one particular leader with the one particular um, set of ideas that you have on the right, just because that's the nature of, of having a community that is more egalitarian, right? I mean, right. That's, it's not a bad thing to have disagreements and it's not a bad thing to have different opinions. I think when it becomes difficult is when um, those wars between people on the left sort of uh, empower the right to grasp more power. Um, but I don't think that there's like this easy solution that's like everyone just stop fighting. You know, of course, we, we're not going to stop fighting because that's how progress gets made. I mean, if you look at Ecuador right now, there's like this big fight between um, indigenous peoples who say, you know, we have to stop exploiting the resources. Um, and then the sort of more traditional left who's like, let's keep exploiting the resources, but let's keep the money for ourselves as opposed to, you know, having it go to the U.S. Like a actors, you know. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, like, that's a real discussion. It's not just something where we can say, OK, well, let's just not fight about it anymore. The other thing we have to keep in mind is that when you get when you get told, like, there shouldn't be infighting, there shouldn't be infighting. Very often what you default to is the people with more power should get to decide. So, like, in that in that fight between indigenous people and the sort of more central left that's had power, um, obviously we would default to, okay, well, the the people who have some power and the people who um, wanna keep using these resources, we should all not fight with them. It's never, it's never we should all not fight with the indigenous people. Um, so I don't, I don't think the solution is just to say, well, we can't infight because, that's well, I mean, just the nature it, it, of democracy. That's what democracy it, is. It's fighting. And that's what, you know, the left is. It's more democracy. I mean, that's what when people ask, you know, Bernie Sanders, well, how do you define democratic socialism? He's like more democracy. Um, and right. it's interesting because like that is actually the fight that we're having in the states. We don't usually see it that from that perspective. But, you know, lessening our dependence on foreign oil is a very center left uh, take. And that was the excuse that that the Obama administration used for 
expanding uh, hydraulic frac, you know, fracking basically um, was to lessen our dependence on on oil from you know Saudi Arabia. Uh, yeah. And that of was course, always a joke. I mean, we can't. Well, but the yeah. leftists, of course. I mean, we're not here to argue about that. But like the leftists, right. of course, were saying no. We don't want that. We just want to completely get off oil. Obviously, we're a country with much, 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 much more resources, and it has a global implication on the actual industry of oil and gas. But throw that out. All right, I want to switch gears just for a second because um, I am going to start talking about this a lot because I believe I don't know if it's twenty twenty four or beyond. It could be uh, that that <laughs> Doctor Oz is. The Republicans bet for the White House, not just, you know, through the Senate, of course, partly because this this like distrust of of uh, of every institution out there um, preying on people who are in like the health and wellness community. And Dr. Oz is, of course, you know, like a more uh, critical of Western <coughs> medicine. And he has made a lot of money off of that on on shows. He's as well known. He had a major show, has a major show on TV, as well known as uh, Donald Trump. So he has the name ID. He's far more charming. He appeals to a lot more women. Uh, likely doesn't have the baggage that Trump did uh, with women. He gets along and used to get along with a lot of Democrats. Seems like we've got a lot of um, overlap here. And he's not aggressively fascist. So you don't even know you're like falling for him. Um, and this, you know, this simultaneously has happened while the Republicans have really been going after Fauci, which I really didn't understand until this. Uh, let's let's play some clips of Dr. Oz running for Senate. Oh, I, I buried the lead. He's running for Senate as a Republican in Pennsylvania from Southern Jersey. Which I appreciate. What about what is your position as both a doctor and a senatorial candidate on when life begins? When should we draw the line when abortion is is legal? As a doctor, I appreciate the sanctity of life. And for that reason, I'm strongly pro-life with the three exceptions I've mentioned. That's how I would vote. And when does that life begin? You know, again, if I'm pro-life, then it's a decision that com comes back to the sanctity of when you think life does begin. And I believe it begins when it, you're in the mother's womb. Oh, God. When you're in the mother's womb? But that, that carries you all the way up to nine months of pregnancy. No, of course not. Life's already started when you're in your mother's womb. But it's a rat hole to get trapped in the different ways of talking about it. You, we need, as a nation, to make sure the Constitution is appropriately followed. And people like me, and you may be in the same camp, who are pro-life, have our feelings respected. And this is something that should not be taken away from us by judiciary legislating from the bench. Yeah, uh, but that's also something that's going to have to be legislated. And that answer is going to have to be given specifically. What Listen, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you tonight. To who is he? What happened? What happened? Oh my God, Julia. Okay, so can, can we go back to Julia? Um, uh, well, I mean, I think I don't know enough about you know his background other than he was a sort of talking head on cable news. I think a lot of old people really like him, so I'm sure that no, that's he, he was not a talking head on cable. I'll tell you his background. He oh, was on okay. Oprah. Oprah. He was on Oprah. Okay. Yes. Yes. He was the health. I know a lot. I'm all in the same I know category. the man. Like, Let me just. Old, I know the old man. people it's watch it. That's what I know. <laughs> yeah. No, not old people. That's the thing. It's not old people that watch Oprah. No. Oh, first old of, people Oprah watch hasn't Oprah. been on air in fifteen in ten years. But her demographics were not old. It was. It was like like thirty to you know also different era when people were watching more TV. This is 
horrifying. I seriously doubt you can find a big Oprah fan that's under the age of 40. <laughs> now, because she's not on air. Right, but but that's who he's going to appeal to is what I'm saying. Like, older uh, people. Exactly. like Yeah. I mean, to go back to your comment about him being the Republican uh, potential nominee, um, I don't think you're wrong in that, like, Trump sort of showed that there's this, like, massive um, – opportunity for anyone with any sort of celebrity to kind of jump in and just jump the line. They don't need to spend 30, 40 years waiting in the Senate and, and, you know, building that experience. Like people don't care. People really yeah. don't care. Um, that being said, I still think, like I mentioned that Trump is the best bet for 2024. Why the fuck would they not run Trump again? I mean, people are obsessed with him uh, for all of the baggage that he has. Um, we know that the party understands the temperature of their electorate and, and isn't denouncing him. They're not distancing themselves from him. And there's a reason for that because they know he can come back and they know that if they piss off their base, um, they're not going to come out and vote for someone else. So, I mean, if Trump is dead in two years, which is totally possible, he's very old, um, then he won't run and he won't win. But if he's alive, I think there's a good chance he'll run. And I think there's honestly a good chance he'll win as well. And if I mean, he gets in there again, I wouldn't plan on him leaving <laughs> he's still yeah exactly um he's still under investigation he's still i mean there's some very serious things like he's now you know well no no, no. i mean uh, attorney general tish james i will has, put money on the fact that that man will never suffer any consequences for anything he's done i will put I, money on I, that. I think that's a very good bet but he is now <laughs> going to have to uh he he actually has to appear before um the courts here which he's done before but this is a little bit you know Different. Nothing but an opportunity for more PR, free PR for Donald Trump. Get up on, just, get up on the stand it. and just, you know, say crazy, say a bunch of crazy shit and be in the news. He'll literally look at the judge and be like, "I appointed you." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone will tweet about it for two weeks. So he'll yeah, be like, I, mean, "I went partying with you." He'll be like, "Your wife's a, you know, whatever." Yeah. You know what I'll say? We know. Um, okay. so in, in in other news, while um, someone who we used to think was a good guy, Dr. Oz, which of course he's not. He's he's had a PR before. Just I want to make this very clear. He's he's been um in congressional hearings for some of his his sketchy takes on things. Of course, public you know, when you have a television show uh that has to come out with like new studies all the time, that's not how the medical industry work medical field works. You don't there's not like a new study that comes out every day. So he, you know, he had to keep the audience engaged and excited. Um so on the other side, uh, you've got the pro wrestling world, which let's not forget, Donald Trump was a big part of boosting that pro wrestling world. Um, I'm like now in love with this guy. I'm not going to lie. I have a little bit of a crush. Uh, the wrestler who had the uterus on his shirt. Uh, for those who are not able to see this, definitely Google it on your devices. Um, this wrestler, wait, hang on. Go back up. Go back up. I'm, I'm yelling at David for the audio people to go back up. Okay. So this wrestler, whose name is on a, a different tweet that I saw, uh, has a – he was on stage and he had a shirt on. It says, get your own, then tell it what to do, and there's ovaries. Um, you know, I think this is called being an ally. Oh, wait. If you scroll down a little bit, the guy – the next tweet tells you who this wrestler is, I think. It's CM Punk. Yeah. Go CM Punk. Are you single? Mm -hmm. He's also very good looking. We like him. Yeah. He's I'm going to objectify him the way I don't. Looking. I don't know anything about wrestling or this man, but we can appreciate his pro choice shirt. I will say it's kind of sad that like 
this is like such a headline making thing. Yeah. Like, where are the men? Like, where are they? Me they too. don't, they don't even, they don't say anything. I mean, actually, when you look at like, um, the sort of people who like celebrity activists, allies, whoever, who are usually tweeting nonstop, like they're pretty quiet. I mean, uh, women, not as much, but yeah, like male celebrities, I haven't seen them saying anything. Exactly. Male celebrities, men everywhere. You know, this affects you too. I don't know if you realize that. You may not realize it. Sometimes it's hard for men Maybe to not, do one yeah. plus one, but one plus one equals it also affects you. So <laughs> mic drop. Thank you, Sam. Not that he's like the hero of this because clearly he's not. He's just yeah, an ally, like, but this is how you yeah. be an ally. Go be an ally, guys. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm done with Dr. Oz. I know there's another clip, but like I'm over it now. I'm just so angry because he's going to be president. Because um, <laughs> he's so charming. That's the problem. He has a different – His brows are very high. I think he had a like, – Yeah, done. I think he did too. A little, little, little lifter. Everyone gets this done now. The, That's the a, brows. for folks to know that Julia lifted her – face up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. The audio folks. Okay. Um, what else do we want to talk about? Uh, oh, okay. Is this the strategy to defeat the, 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 the people on the left who are dancing with the people on the right? Um, I think some people might be doing this unconsciously. Some people are doing it very strategically. Some people maybe uh, have always been part of the right and just were like dancing with the left for a little bit. This one account, um, and this, I just want to make this clear. This is in no reflection of my beliefs, uh, but I did think it was a very creative strategy to take this on. Uh, we have Brian Bakunin, who has a new site. I just have to give this guy a plug because it's so creative. Let's play it. Anybody on the left who's uh, considering working with anyone on the right is literally a Nazi enabler. It's got to be war. But I am sorely disappointed. I have been promised a fascist authoritarian coup directed by Vladimir Putin himself for four years now, and I'm getting a little impatient waiting to see how it all goes down. Anti-establishment populism is not the answer to defeating fascism. Art and music and righteous indignation and laughter and love and fun are. <laughs> I, I, I have arrived to not introduce myself really as much as not, not, not me, the us, that we all seem to have forgotten since COVID. But remember that slogan and remember that fun we were all having? Yeah. Yeah. Now, you don't seem to have remembered it on your show, so I have come to force the fun. His whole idea is that he's using humor and disco dancing and art to illustrate what's happening um, and the rise of the far right. So I thought it was a very creative way of doing this. And yeah, I feel like I'm on acid. <laughs> I definitely, if you were watching it, you would definitely get that. I love it, man. I'm like, what are we doing it. in our show? Uh, I, I got a purple screen. <laughs> like, like, what are we I, I thought this was a lot, like the pink glasses and the purple wall. Okay, you're really oh, that's good. Yeah, we like that. Um, yeah, that was a lot. I feel, yeah, like I just went to a really wild party and I need to lie down now. Um, <laughs> no, but but thematically, like you, you know, he is one of the few people who's really like breaking it down right now about this this thing we've all been complaining about, and we get toggled into these like wars over, you know 
vaccine mandates or, uh, you know, or masks or, you know, force the vote or all these things that they keep bringing up that they're trying to suck us into that debate rather than talking about the rise of the right and what that pathway is and talking about, you know, what it takes to build a coalition so that we can defeat the right. Instead, they they are creating their own. It's a very like Roger Stone tactic where Roger Stone used to just put in instigators at all rallies. And then you'd be like, how the fights break out? And then it's like, turns out it was the guy being paid by Roger Stone who just went in there and punched a bunch of people. Similar, but, you know, in the media space. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a naivete that comes along with leftists who want to ally with right wingers. And let me... um. Let me also, you know, specify that I'm talking about like there's an anti-establishment left and there's an anti-establishment right. And there are some people on the left who say, well, both of us are outside of power. So both of us have this vested interest in taking down the people who are in power. And what that sort of leaves out of the equation is that leftists want to get into power and create this more equitable world where everyone is um, reaping the benefits of living in a modern technological society. Um and, you know, where people shouldn't have to work as much or as hard and they should be able to have access to healthcare and clean food and water and all of these positive things. Um, and right wingers want to get into power and abuse that power in exactly the same way that the current power structure does, only even fucking worse. So, I mean, like, there's yeah. no, like, give and take in this relationship. Like, when the left gets into power um versus when they enable the right to have power, like, enabling those people, enabling... Um, people like Trump to take power, they're not going to turn around and pat you on the back and be your friend after they get power. You know, right. they're going to fucking kill you. <laughs> like, no, that's literally, what happens like, every time. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when right wing authoritarians um, ultimately take power, whether it's through populist means, um, you know, uh, coups that occur from the top down or bottom up. Uh, ultimately, the first thing that happens is they round up all of their political opponents and they fucking kill them. Mm -hmm. And 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 it doesn't necessarily happen like through roundups the way it has historically in other countries. Um, but in our country, they just arm. They just have a, an armed force, police force that just runs around and shoots people, um, and uses whatever excuse and legal defense that they can because they've lobbied for it. Like that is the same thing. For, for folks who like are like, oh, it'll never happen here. It is happening here. It's just got a different, it's just structured a little bit differently. It's just structured a little bit differently. Um, all right, Julia, on that note, they're going to come for you and kill you. Don't align with them. Yeah. I just think it's never a good idea to trust a Nazi. <laughs> don't trust Nazis. But they don't call themselves Nazis, Julia. Come on. Some of them do, though, right? I mean, some of them are openly, like, wearing the, like, Pinochet did nothing wrong. Like, I'm openly a fascist. Some of them certainly sort of obfuscate that. But then they also al ally themselves with all the same ideas. So yes. it's just sort of... They're like, we're for Medicare for all. Semantics. After we kill yeah. everybody that's our opponent. God, yeah. that's, that's what you don't understand. They say they're for Medicare for all. But that's, you know, in year two after they've killed the women, the Jews, the people of color, the indigenous people, the unions, and Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that um, we're, we're not joking, by the way. <laughs> like, I think that. I think that we're in a dangerous place. And I think that Trump getting back into power um, is 
a big possible. And I think that the Democrats aren't preparing for that. The Democrats are in some kind of delusional art yeah. alternate reality where Biden getting elected was this massive mandate for things to go back to normal, which of course it wasn't. Nobody wants to go back to normal because normal is what produced Trump. Um, well, I'm of the belief that he's not coming back into power and his it doesn't matter because the margins were so small. It doesn't matter if he comes in back into power or not. We're losing power in November, no matter what. And Joe Biden is clearly not doing anything. He's completely beholden to a couple of, or pretends to be beholden to a couple of people in the Senate. Um, I got to wrap, Julie. I'm sorry. Love you. I didn't mean to cut you no, off. No, no worries. They're going to come and kill us and be a better ally. Well, that's not the best sound bite, but <laughs> what, I think I think beware of empowering fascists. It's not going to go well for you. Is it does the, not. Is the summary you know summary we're, we're, we're here guys 11 months 11 months 11 months um love you julia be well hope you don't have any jet lag it's not that the time difference isn't that no bad. i'm fine i'm fine All right. just, been just a couple days you know what the trick is around two o'clock just um take a shot of mezcal <laughs> some people take naps i'm like <laughs> i think i would take a nap after that for sure yeah <laughs> four all right have a wonderful Friday, everybody. Thank you for being here. And as always, stay in solidarity. See you on Tuesday for TNS Live on Rockfin and YouTube. The No Mickey Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back a currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and this melted body living. Time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. The No Mickey Show.